Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Eric Wright, your host. This is a doubly sponsored episode for a couple of really cool reasons. I've actually been working on a neat project where I've been helping out folks to get rolling with of doing more effective demos and being able to be better storytellers, especially if you're in technical sales or product marketing. So if you want to go to velocityclosing.com, it's actually a new book project that I just launched and I'm super proud of it. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, it's been well-received, well-reviewed. So if you're keen, if you're at all in, in the technology space, if you're looking to do marketing, product marketing, technical sales, this is a super way to be able to engage with your customers and really learn how to tie in to people like me, who I am your target customer. So again, go to velocityclosing.com. You can actually buy and download the book right there. Uh, and you even get access to an upcoming special I've got where I'm going to do the audiobook. And I've also got a cool course that I'm launching at the same time. So if you get it now, you're going to be part of the introductory offer. All right, I also want to give a big shout out to our good friends at Veeam Software. It's V's all over the place, Velocity Closing and Veeam. So Veeam Software has been a longtime supporter of me, both in the podcast and my blog. And especially because I really just love what they do. Uh, I'm very proud of their platform. Uh, if you do want to check it out, go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. You can actually make sure that you use that uh, URL and that'll get you. You can actually download and, and buy the platform right there. Uh, but check it out. They got free trials and anything you want for your data protection needs. Truly, Veeam is the place to go. Wow. We'll talk about Apropos because this is a great episode where I feature Danny Allen, who's the CTO of Veeam Software. I actually invited Danny on just because he's a fantastic human, fellow Canadian, fellow cyclist, and somebody who I really had an incredible conversation with. So I hope that you enjoy this as much as I do. And again, don't forget to, to visit Veeam, give him a little shout out, let him know you came here. But with that, enjoy the show. This is uh, a an all Canadian opportunity here. It's it's actually a rare treat when I get to share the microphone with somebody who says project and process like I do, uh, and and shares my Canadianisms. But more than that, uh, I'm excited because I've got Danny Allen. You are more than just a Canadian. You're a fantastic human, and you're also the CTO of Veeam Software, among many things. So v, uh, Danny, if you want to introduce yourself, uh, let us know where we can kind of connect with you online. And we are going to dive into, I call this the idea of the platform approach and why you and your team have been particularly successful at it and how maybe others can kind of realize what, what it means. But anyways, let's start with you. Uh, where, where does one track you down online? Well, I suppose like everyone, I am uh, on Twitter and LinkedIn and things. But uh, yeah, I'm the, the CTO at Veeam. I've been here for about three and a half years. Um, I certainly publish some of my thoughts on the Veeam blog. I publish kind of career and general things on LinkedIn in articles. The one thing I'll point out, by the way, Danny Allen. Allen is with an A, not an E. So sometimes people find it hard to uh, find me. But uh, yeah, on LinkedIn and then on Twitter, Danny Allen Five is my Twitter handle. I'm not as active as some people on Twitter, but uh, I certainly enjoy 
watching the the conversations across the the social universe and participate when it uh, is appropriate. Yeah, sometimes it's as enjoyable just to 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 crowd watch, you know, kind of like sitting in in a in a train station just watching the interactions of people. Uh, they're they're a little bit more interesting, especially lately with you know a ton of stuff going on in the world. But I wanted to open up mostly because your team is obviously got a lot going on and you've had platform updates. You had a very successful digital event, which I want to applaud you on that one because this is no easy feat and people who've tried to do, you know, digital webinars at any kind of scale is hard. It's very difficult to, to get that just to work and keep engagement, but you did it for a full digital event that was multi-day and beautifully produced and and i thought but the content was a, just a beautiful mix of like nailed down why it matters to the business and why it matters to the people and then underneath it some really wicked good technology stuff that was shared so it was a it was a beautiful sort of merger of all of those things in in a two-day event so hey let's talk about latest updates and and what was the outcomes of vmon yeah, so as you say, we had some solid foundations for Vmon. In other words, since the beginning of the year, we've actually released, as of today, actually, or maybe tomorrow, it will be 16 product releases, 15 if you don't include this week. Um, so that gives us a solid foundation to build on because we have lots of things to talk about in terms of delivery cadence within our platform. And so Vimon, as you know, has always been a physical event. Uh, this year it was supposed to be in Las Vegas and our uh, target has always been a few thousand technology individuals. This year we said, okay, because of the pandemic, because of COVID-19, let's do virtual. And we had a target of about 15,000 registrants was the original target because we thought, okay, we can talk about all these things. We can figure out, you know, whether it's resonating, what they want. And what was interesting is that we ended up with almost 30,000, just shy of 29,000 registrants as of the virtual event. And, and since that time, we've had another couple thousand. So we're actually well over 30,000 now that have registered. So it's a really fantastic opportunity. One of the things that we didn't do, which I would argue attributed to the success, is we didn't just pick up the physical and move it over to virtual. We said, how can we take advantage of a virtual platform to do things that we couldn't do in the physical platform? Uh, and so things like moderating conversations during the live uh, presentations, doing things like having uh, a Veeam a Vimathon, which is live, interactive, hands-on access to the software with our support personnel who deal with this every day. So there was a lot of things that we took to the virtual event that we didn't do in the physical event, and it we were very proud of our success. And, and the kudos goes certainly to our internal events team, Jim Kruger, our CMO, Tammy is our vice president who runs that, but also to our customers who participated in it. it was, we were very happy the the way you frame it is very important right you didn't just you know lift and shift as the tech term would go a physical event and move it to a virtual platform you looked for the right opportunities to tune uh, it, it, one would say it's a good enterprise architecture mindset anyways like anything we should do should be are we just doing what we did in a different place at a different time 
And I think that's where a lot of folks are, are stumbling with the digital event. Plus we've got kind of timing was very good. Not that you wouldn't be successful if you ran it tomorrow, but I think we're far enough in right now. I'm also hearing people talk about like digital event fatigue where mm -hmm. they've, so imagine VMworld, right? We have 250 sponsoring participants. Well, that's now 250 virtual events that are going on along with a digital VMworld. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's a very, I think there's a lot of mind share and, and eye share that we're, as vendors are kind of fighting over. You know, have you felt that yourself, heard it from your, your customers or other folks in the ecosystem? I've certainly both felt it and heard it. We had an unfair advantage that we did come early on in the season, you might say. Um, but we have a rich ecosystem of alliance partners of which I've registered for all their virtual conferences. And I, I have to say that you're much more engaged for myself. I'm more engaged when I'm there in person just because I'm somewhat locked in. It's all I'm doing. I'm going to the keynote. I'm going, I'm maximizing my time where when I'm not going to those physical events, I'm more likely to get distracted by something on the computers. And, and you do run into fatigue because you're going one after another. Um, and so we did have an unfair advantage and it will be interesting to see long-term how this plays out. Will people continue with the virtual? Will they go back to physical? Will they try to do some hybrid model of the two? We talk an awful lot about hybrid when it comes to cloud. Maybe we need to do a little more hybrid in the virtual event because you know, we went from a few thousand people to 30,000 people. That was a significant advantage. Maybe we can do better at virtual engagement while still doing physical events. Yeah, I definitely think the, this is a beautiful opportunity in a way, if anything, any difficulty should be regarded as an opportunity for advancement. Mm -hmm. Is this not a like, oh, well, let's just get through this and then well, we'll, we'll figure it later. No, like we, We've got to learn in life, right? We are facing that right now. We are learning stuff that's, you know, data and situations are changing continuously. And if we don't use that to feed the future, then what's the old saying that we're, we're sort of doomed to repeat history, et cetera, et cetera. But the other thing too, so platform updates, uh, you've had, if we think about folks that maybe knew Veeam from, from back in the day, as they say, you know, it was BNR, it was backup and recovery. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people in the cloud that say data, data gravity is the most important factor. I would say data protection gravity is probably one of the more important factors about like how you can expand that ecosystem. So let's talk about, you know, kind of a, a list of, of some of the major updates that you've kind of played out recently. Sure. So without question, we kicked off the year with the, with the fireworks display, version 10. The reason I say that, we've been talking about version 10 since ooh, 2017. Now, the reality is what happened between 2017 and now is rather than having one major release with all those capabilities along the way, we would drop a major update every single year with some of those capabilities. So version 10 wasn't this package of the five big things that we said in 2017. Actually, it was just the last of those five big things, which was NAS data protection. Um, but it was a great way to kick off the year. We added, like I say, the key feature in that was NAS data protection, which we never had. We only did NDMP uh, to tape in the past. Um, since we released that, the uptake has been phenomenal. Our customers have been asking for it. And of course, they began using it 
immediately. So we were very happy with that. We also, there was a number of core capabilities built into the platform, like improvements on our instant recovery capabilities. We pioneered, patented actually, instant VM recovery almost a decade ago, and, and we added in version 10 the ability to do that at scale. We, we took the approach of, let's assume we don't have SSDs. Let's assume we don't have fast hardware. How do we make instant recovery great again, but at scale for customers? And so we did all kinds of memory optimizations and pre-block fetching and things that people don't really care about. The result of that was a better optimization in doing recovery at scale. And so there was a lot of really core functionality built into V10 and the success has been staggering for us based on that. But since that time, as I mentioned, we've done 14 more releases. We're halfway through the year now or, or components of our cloud data management platform, notably Veeam Backup for Microsoft Azure, cloud native product to do same way that Veeam pioneered agentless based backup for the hypervisor. This is agentless based backup for Azure. We added, uh, we released Veeam Backup for AWS version two. Actually version one was just released in December of last year, but again, cloud native for AWS and, and pioneered around AWS's capabilities. Like they just added change block tracking. We took advantage of that API and did change block tracking for AWS. We did a release for Veeam Backup for Office 365, fastest growing product in Veeam's history. So all of these components all are integrated together, but over the last uh, six months, we've been essentially releasing those on almost a monthly cadence. Last, last week alone, two, two components of the platform updated. So it's, it's been a very good year and we expect that to continue through the rest of the year. In the time that you've been there, have you, I would describe sort of the difference in this, right? Like so V10 relative to the first release that you were sort of leading out when you arrived at the company, big differences, right? I think it's just the breadth of the ecosystem is so different. It, it's, it changes your, the way you think about what is a, a new release really mean, you know, now that you have, you know, different sectors of, of the platform. Yeah, when I joined three years ago, actually, I didn't join as CTO. I joined as running Cloud and Alliance strategy because clearly, and I'll talk about cloud, we, we had a direction to move towards cloud and we're doing that now faster than ever. However, at the time, Veeam was really only doing virtual. We had agents, but they were free. We didn't sell them. Um, we didn't have any cloud native data protection at the time. We really were focusing specifically on the vSphere workload. Now, since that time, we have iterated tremendously. And, and we talk about this going from act one to act two, which people always associate with going from virtual to cloud. However, what I would say is it frustrates me at some level if people only equate that to a technology discussion, because it happens, that transition has happened at multiple levels. One is, some, one is a segment approach. We traditionally focused on commercial and not all the way down to SMB, but you know the, the lower half of the market. We've done this major transition to being, our fastest growing segment is enterprise and these massive VCSPs with hundreds of thousands of virtual machines and users being protected. So part of that transition of act one to act two is targeting the upper end of the market. Another aspect of that was licensing. We always sold based on sockets for a data center. We're transitioning now to an 
instance-based approach because there is no sockets in the cloud. I don't know how many sockets my things are running on. It's a, it's a transition at an R&D level, which to me is probably most important. We, we would have these kind of waterfall type approaches historically one release a year, where now we're dropping components every single month of the year. It's just this continuous iteration. And so this is act one to act two, far beyond just you know, on-premises to the cloud. It's an R&D cadence, it's a licensing cadence, it's a segment cadence, it's a whole new shift over how we tackle and win the market. The, the approach that you, you, it's very important in how you described it is just it's a, the way in which we do things as much as the tech that underlies that. And I would say that like three years ago, you know, people still, you know, it was still very tongue in cheek, but they talked about the cloud still as being a bit of a fad for a lot of customers and containers like, ah, you know, you and I grew up in the ecosystem and you probably at one point had a, some, hopefully had some kind of a normal human architect job and, and you'd come in and the, the bot, the CIO would have read network world that he, you know, got for free in the mail. And all of a sudden he says, we need to get a NAS. I don't know why, but it's in network world this week. So why aren't we doing this? And the kind of cloud came that way and, and containers came that way. But now they're actually being broadly adopted and the way in which we use those technologies is now appropriate. Like, yes. Just like P to V, it's a terrible idea. It's a fundamentally broken way of moving workloads from physical machines to virtual. But hey, look, it got us there and we learned. And so we've done the same thing, I think, with cloud. And we still see lift and shift going on, you know, and we still talk about this idea of containerization being the, you know, pets versus cattle. Well, I don't know. I got a lot of, I used to have a, have a cow as a kid and I named it, you know, and I kept <laughs> took care of it, right? And... So I've got a lot of containerized workloads that don't look like the, you know, eight minute lifespan that's supposedly the mean, you know, lifespan of a container. So I'm calling Bravo Sierra on, but if you're, if you're using containers and it's long running, then you're doing it wrong. I firmly believe that we are, we are still adapting to these kind of capabilities. And so long, long way to get to the question, but you know, what's your experience in talking to customers and, and talking to your peers about like, are they seeing the world catch up and, and are we kind of pushing them towards it? We are seeing the world catch up and it's happening probably less quickly than some people would like. I always say it takes a decade for technologies to find their stride or find their position. We go out and espouse one particular value as being the value of a new technology, but often early on in cycles, we don't know what the real value is. There is one exception to that. Virtualization took off very, very quickly. And the reason why it took off quickly is because the, the ROI and consolidation was, was very significant. But if you look at most of the other big changes that occurred when you went from mainframe to physical and physical to virtual and now virtual into containerized. We might say the value is one thing. Google built containers to your point because you have 
a gazillion people hitting google.com simultaneously and they needed things to be able to spin up and spin down in real time. But I actually believe the value of containers probably won't be the Google search use case. It'll probably be things like portability across platforms rather than elasticity. And anytime you go through these transitions, there's always refactoring and building and it's the greenfield opportunities. If you go back and try and retrofit old workloads to the new paradigm, you're not really getting those new values effectively. So I think we're early on, um, but it is true that customers, especially the large enterprises, are figuring it out. They're moving forward. It's just not happen happening as quickly as everyone who is cloud native or container native or whatever the things would like it to move. Well, the, the interesting thing is the, those large enterprise customers, I've, I've even a few years ago, I remember it was part of my sort of VMUG presentations and different like, uh, you know, tech presentations. I'd say that your, your bank has more developers than your hypervisor vendor. That's just an unfortunate fact. When you think that that VMworld is the one that's going to change the world. Well, no, it's the people adopting it that will. And mm -hmm. what, what happened was we saw the, you know, the major North American banks have potentially thousands of developers developing, you know, disparate different applications, but they are very much in a, you know, we have to build this because the world is not ready. Like the world hasn't figured our use case out. And so they've, they're leading the charge. But what's great about open ecosystems now too, is they effectively are giving back and we can now innovate as a, as a group and a community, which is kind of neat. And that's where like obviously Kubernetes and, and those things sort of spun up is that it's not just Google, you know, Google's like, Hey, we did this really neat thing. Check it out. And then, you know, along comes, you know, Chase Manhattan says, Hey, very cool. And then six months later, like, Hey, take a look what we did with it. And now you suddenly have both business use cases and technology innovation that's kind of pairing up together. And so it's, it's neat. I think it's sort of a beautiful, this is another, I think, kind of zero to one or opportunity as far as like, like you said, virtualization was crazy, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and that was just, it was a platform leap, which fundamentally changed the way we dealt with computing because it targeted an original use case that was Im immensely powerful to a business. And then the side effect was like, Ooh, you know, now we had all this other stuff we could layer on top of it. Is the, yeah, and, and one thing I, I would just add to that, I totally agree is that the value of companies going forward. If you look, think of this at a market level, I do think it's, it's in the ecosystem. It's in the community rather than in the silo, which is, a fundamentally different way of thinking about building companies. If you try to do everything yourself, what you do is you alienate the context in which everyone in the community in which you run, you're going to alienate them. And you need to understand that context because there is no one vendor that does everything from the chip all the way up to the politics, I guess, being the top of the OSI yeah. stack, what's that level 11 or so, but um, there's no one that does that full stack model. And so having that community is, is so important. It's why podcasts and, and that are so important because it actually brings people together across these different organizations. Yeah, this really is a, you know, in the podcasting, I, I've I've heard it described, and so I carry this the the statement of it's a, a Gutenberg revolution, 
in what we can do that it's now amplified speech and voice and opinion in a way that has context but also has amplification and that's a that's a beautiful opportunity i think and enterprise computing i think is really uh, I'm excited. Like every day is like the best day to be in technology in my mind because <laughs> I'm, I'm a nerd inside, but I also more importantly, I, I want stuff to succeed and that requires kind of building a business around it. And look, I'm the biggest proponent for open, pure open source technologies. Love it. Right. I was, heck, I even, I would was all in on OpenStack. I did a ton of stuff in the OpenStack ecosystem, still do. But I also saw this kind of dichotomy where the pure open how can I describe it? I want to say zealot. That sounds a little bit harsh, uh, but the the purists were very anti. You know, well, I don't want you know uh, a major tech vendor to contribute to this because then they're just doing it for their own purposes. And I wanted to sort of grab them by the ears and just give them a little shake and say, you understand if they do it and more people adopt it, that's good for everybody, right? But we. I think we struggle with a lot of that. And that's that sort of community enterprise split, which is, it's unfortunate, right? Because I live in both worlds and I, I'm, a, I'm an open capitalist, maybe, whatever you want to describe it. Probably, I guess I would, I would line up as a libertarian. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> How's the, how important was community to the way you've like kind of brought things to the world in the technologies that you've been involved with? A hundred percent fundamental. So let me start at a personal, but then go to the team level. At a personal level, I think you and I probably very much align. My belief is all software wants to be free. And I'll tell you, truthfully, if I could have my way, I'd love all software to be free. I, last night, I wanted to use ArcGIS, and I thought, oh, I wish I could just go download it and use it and <laughs> go forward. Um, so I'm a big believer in that community and, and uh, the community. Within my team, so I run the office of the CTO. We really have three mandates. Uh, one is certainly to evangelize outwardly where we're going, strategic roadmap, all of that. Second is to solicit the, the feedback that drives product management and our product improvements. But the third one is community. That is actually one of the three core tenants of the group that I work in. And, and we've tackled that a few different ways. One is, of course, we have a program ourselves where we go out and solicit feedback. We call them beam vanguards that give us all kinds of fantastic events and participate in V mugs and, you know, the brown bag events and all of these. My team is very, very active in that. But even beyond that, Veeam has always had a focus on community by giving away product. Every single product that we bring to market always has some form of free addition. I'll tell you quite honestly, sometimes the enterprise sales teams don't like that. Sometimes they don't <laughs> like the fact at some level that there's a free product. But if you think, for example, of our, uh, the Veeam agents, we gave them away from free starting in 2015, didn't even charge for them. It wasn't until late 2017 that there was a paid version of it. If you look at, at the VBR, you started with, kind of the core, what we started with being back up in application, there's always been some level of free. Now, why does Veeam, why do I, why do we think that that's important? It's because if you can get technologists out there using it, forget about paying, 
There is value in them using it at multiple levels. One is they'll tell you how to make it better and the things that they want, right? They're, they're vocal. We have an online forum with that Anton set up 12 years ago that is a passionate group of people that is saying, you need to do this. You should do this. We like this. So they give you lots of feedback. Secondly, as those technologists become directors and vice presidents and CIOs, guess what they're going to use? They're going to use the product that they're already incredibly familiar with. Um, so we have always had this go-to-market motion that has involved community, and I would argue it's been incredibly successful for us. It's really key what you talk about, and so I'll, I'll use an example, which actually leads me to the, the big topic I wanted to hit on. Uh, so HashiCorp is a name that any technologist is familiar with, regardless of whatever the product they're using. And I was lucky enough, I sat down with Dave McJanet, who's their CEO, and I've talked with Mitchell and, and, and Armand, the co-founders, and they're fantastic, fantastic people. Love their technology. I've been using all, all their products pretty much since the day they, they showed up on GitHub. And Dave McJanet describes the sort of what you just described, right? Like when you've got 20,000 people using it, finding people that'll pay for it is a great challenge to take on instead of trying to sell something to people that aren't using your product and convincing them that they need the bloody thing. But then he looked at their sort of stack of tools. And I, my favorite quote, he says, if you squint hard enough, it looks like a platform. And they were kind of struggling at that time of like, how do you, how do you pitch this? Do you truly pitch it as a, uh, some kind of a dependent platform, even though they wanted to maintain layer independence? Um, do you sell it and package it that way? So they were just at the point of developing their commercial products. And it was this interesting idea. And platform was a great way to describe it, right? So what is a platform? And, and I look to, you know, Veeam is a great example, I think, where they've been very effective in, like, do something that people see as core to their function, to their business, to their operations, and then do amazing things on top of it and extend it versus, you know, building a bunch of tools and then trying to glue them together. I won't call out names that are that are bad at it because that's just mean and i'm not that kind of podcaster <laughs> but uh through my own work i face a lot of companies that are like that because and you find yourself going like no look we built this thing to do something and it's everything we've done is built on that core that foundation and as a platform now we grow and become great because the core was solid so it's an, how did platform, how did platform become an approach? You know, let's talk about the Veeam story, but I'd love to even go further back because I would lay bets that you've had this mindset for a while. Yes, no question. I, I'm a believer in, it's a fine line to walk between platform and products. One side of the equation, and this is, you know, Democrat, Republican, left and right, whatever you want to get into, it, it's a religion to some who say, I need a completely integrated platform that works all together. And then you get people who say, no, I need completely siloed products because I can move a lot faster. 
The truth, as with all things, lies somewhere in the middle. And I've tried to do both throughout my career. If I look back, uh, tried individual products, and then I also have taken a collection of individual products and tried to refactor them into a single unified platform. And it is a fine line to walk, but I have, through the companies that I've worked at, come to believe that you can do it. You just need to surround yourself with really smart people, surround yourself with really smart customers. And don't listen to, this might be controversial, don't listen to everyone. Listen to the right people in order to build what you need to build. That's a, it's very important what you described there. How do you, how do you find who is, is right? Like, that's a tough differentiation. It is a tough differentiation. The, it's not always the smartest people who are the right people to listen to. I would rather listen to someone who has a history of delivering and predicting things correctly than someone who is the smartest person in the room. There is no science to this. It is a bit of an art, but what you learn just by asking questions and listening is far more than you ever learn by speaking. And so, you know, it, it takes some time, but I'm very privileged to come into Veeam with a collection of really sophisticated people who have that experience across the industry. And it's the diversity that actually gives you value because everyone comes from different perspectives. I have Dave Russell's on my team. He was the principal analyst and, uh, you know, from uh, Gartner, really, really smart. And then I have technologists on the team and I have, you know, Jason Buffington was ESG and they did all kinds of statistical analysis. So everyone has a perspective to share. And I always say, listen to them all. And what you'll find is some of those, the best ideas will bubble to the top and you can coalesce around them. The team's an important part of it, and it, it actually comes out in everything you you describe. It's 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 always seems to be behind, you know, when you talk about depending on and leaning into and listening to. It's not just a person, but it's always like it's a customer, as a group, or a team of people that that are there with you. How how early did you kind of capture that as an important you know, capability? My very first job, actually, if you go back to the very beginning, I look back through my career and I learned something specific from every job that I worked. And when people say, what's your first job? The one that I'm going to give may surprise some people, but almost was more fundamental in shaping me than any technology company that I worked at. And why do I say that? It wasn't a technology company, it was McDonald's. People say, what you're gonna you're gonna start <laughs> talking about your career at mcdonald's but i am because the first job paying job outside of mowing lawns and shoveling snow and all the things that you did when i was a newspaper carrier i guess work hard was i guess yeah. the, the first thing i learned um but my first job actually that paid by the hour or whatever was was mcdonald's and i went to mcdonald's and i learned i'm gonna say two really incredibly powerful lessons. One is that you have to, maybe three, I'll say. One is that you have to work incredibly hard. There is no, nothing 
given to you. But the second is the value of team. If you work in a restaurant, you have people working on the counter, you have people making food, you have people in drive-through, you have people running the orders, you have people cleaning the lobby. You, there are so many different facets and every single person has value to add. If you take any one of those away, it falls apart. There is, it's just a simple fact. And something that I can be proud of, every, people don't know this, there's something known as a Golden Arch Award, which is given to one McDonald in all of, of Canada, where I grew up, uh, every two years. And the restaurant that I worked at, the, uh, the McDonald's that I worked at, won the Golden Arch Award when I was there. So I, I had the privilege the, of working on a high-performing team, and I was proud to work there. I'm still am incredibly proud. The third thing that I learned there that I would say, though, is the value of cross-functional individuals. Someone who knew how to work in drive-through and on counter and making food and cleaning, someone who had a broad view of the organization was one that was more valuable than someone who had a very siloed view. But I go back to, we started out team. Why, what did I learn there? It was the value of team. If you want to deliver at a high quality, a high quality product or output, you need to work hard. You need a strong team behind you. It's, and it's funny, the, the jobs that have nothing to do with what we do today often have the most to do with what we do today because of those very things. I, I speak as somebody who was a, a cobbler. I, I ran a, a shoe repair shop. Uh, and and interesting thing was I, I worked in the Eaton Center in downtown Toronto, which is a very busy location. I was given the store, which was a fundamentally failing store. We were losing $10,000 a month. And because it's very expensive real estate in that little subway platform where I, <laughs> where I was located. And through just just questioning why the hell do you do it this way? And why wouldn't we just try something different and experimentation and really building amongst this group of small team, right? A culture of experimentation. And in the end, we changed the way it looked. We changed the way we did the flow of people. And ultimately we went from losing 10 K a month to being just slightly below profitable, which may, may not seem like a, a mark of success, but when you're burning cash, every month and to now be able to maintain it and not lose money was significant. And we won, that was the funny thing, we won an award for merchandising and marketing for the mall that was given by Cadillac Fairview, which is a large uh, conglomerate of, of mall owners. Uh, and that was, a, I was at, at this time, I was like, I don't know why I've got this. And I think I'm going to be proud of it one day. I have no idea what it means right <laughs> now. But what it taught me was that I was thinking about how to, make things better for the customers that walked in that door and how to make it obvious and easy for them to make their purchase quickly and, you know, add on some goodies. Like, so obviously the business side was there, but it really was just using the understanding of people was the greatest thing that led me to be good as a technologist. Cause if I didn't know how the hell people did things, how can I know what tools they would use to do those things? One of the things I learned at McDonald's, I think that sounds like this as well, very customer focused, obviously make them happy. The customers didn't always know what they wanted or what they asked for was not necessarily what they wanted. Now you might give them that, but you might find that the thing that really would delight them and make them happier was to do something above and beyond or different. And so 
It's interesting, the things that you learn in those environments that have nothing to do with technology and yet have everything to do with technology. I get people beating up on me every day saying, give me this feature, give me this feature, give me this feature. And you say, well, why do you want that feature? And, and you quickly learn from that, that you could, you might deliver that feature, you may or may not, but you could do something else that is going to make them even 10 times happier than asking for that. And so understanding the why um, and the focus on customers is something that, you know, I think it's transferable across all industries. So talk about team sizes when you're getting started. You've got a, a neat storied history in the industry, you know, starting with small, you know, starting your own organization and, and then working in small teams and growing them to, to scale. How did the dynamic of team begin and change as you watch some of those environments grow? I have worked in every size organization from one where I was the founder, seller, marketer, technologist, <laughs> wrote, chief, sold, chief cook and bottle washer, right? <laughs> <laughs> did everything up to IBM, 400,000 plus employees. So I've worked in them all. And what I would say is that there is no one best fit. I think some people naturally have an affinity towards one size or another. Um, there are pros and cons of all of them. One of the things that I said, I, I learned at McDonald's that I transferred all of these. I always say take advantage of the situation you're in to learn from that environment what might transfer to another. And so I am incredibly thankful to have worked from one to 400,000. Because while I might like one more than another, there are things to learn in all of those. So if you go through my career kind of uh, from uh, starting, my, my first job actually, I, I can kind of walk through and give you a perspective on the different sizes of these. The first team that I worked on, I worked for the university actually that I went to. It's not a story I should probably be telling, but. I've told it before in public, <laughs> so I'll ones. share it. <laughs> I, um, I was going to university and a friend of mine bet me that I couldn't break into the mainframe system of the university. And so being who I am, <laughs> I, I thought, I'll take that challenge. And, and I did. I found uh, the mainframe system on a Banyan Vines network. That should tell you how old I am. But um, found, found an issue with it. Went to the CCS, Computing Communication Services, told them about this issue that they had. And now they would probably kick you out of university. Uh, at the time they hired me. <laughs> um, so my first job actually was for that university working on a very small team. We did a number of different cool projects. I'll say uh, everything from upgrading the workstations from Windows 3.1 to NT 4.0 to securing the network to transitioning from a CP6 mainframe to a to a uh, to a banner ERP like got a really broad set of technology abilities and and I'm incredibly thankful that I started there because the one great thing about an educational institution is they don't really care about money at least in Canada they get funding from the government and they kind of spend it all over the place to get to play with everything but I worked on this small team of of people that were like-minded love technology and it was it was fantastic. Um, I got to exercise what I say, my curiosity to learn about everything from mainframes to desktops, to networks, to, to you name it. I wrote 
web applications for, you know, just did all of these really cool projects. And if I have a recommendation to people starting out, I always say, don't go looking for money, go, go somewhere where you can let that curiosity have free reign to learn, to absorb as much information as you can. But to the team aspect of that, that team was a uh, six or seven people, a lot of fun, very tight knit. We did things together, both at technology and also outside of that. Um, it was a lot of fun. Um, there, and this is another one that often people struggle with. And I see because so technology, especially startups have sometimes difficult reputations just because as an industry, we hear about the noisiest and ugliest stories and they surface and repeat, uh, but the idea of family, and you just kind of described it, right? That the true team is not just what goes on in the, in the office hours, but often how we collaborate and, and share, you know, and maybe even share experiences outside the office, right? How did you see that, that dynamic? And I don't, I, I'm not, I don't think we should be like good fellas and go on vacation with our, <laughs> our, our team all the time, but, there's nothing wrong with maybe going to a baseball game, you know, together on a Saturday or, you know, going out for, uh, for a couple of, a couple of drinks on Tuesday night or something like that. Absolutely. And every day at lunch, we would play ultimate Frisbee out on the, on the front lawn of the administrative building, or I played baseball with some of them, rode motorcycles with others. So yeah, that concept of family and ultimately that enables you, it doesn't only draw you closer together, it allows you to be more effective at a technology level at rolling things out because you, you have that relationship where you can get by a lot of a Bravo Sierra, Sierra I think as you put it, yeah. um, and actually get to delivering outcomes as they need to be delivered. So, and that's, it's a big part of who I am. I actually grew up in a family of 10 siblings. I'm it's Danny Allen five because I'm the fifth child of 11. Um, and <laughs> and, and uh, that, uh, that sense of family allows you to deliver things at a far more rapid cadence than, than you would otherwise. You, you, you trust one another. A, did you have a Partridge family style bus that you drove around? <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, that, that's a heck of a family. Uh, the dynamic there must've been incredible because you were you know, being in the midst you know, on the, in the middle, literally the, the median child of, of, of folks from one end to the other. That must have been a, an interesting lifestyle that is not often seen anymore, right? That's a, it's a whole different ball game nowadays. Not often seen anymore. I learned to drive in a 15 passenger van. That was my, where I learned <laughs> to parallel park and, and drive, but also, um, was interesting from a technology standpoint as well. We were well beyond below the poverty line, if you will. My, my father was a school teacher. Uh, my mother didn't work outside the home. So we didn't have our own computers growing up. My dad would bring home uh, TRS 80s, if you remember those, Tandy yeah. trash 80s, we would call them, or <laughs> Commodore 64s. And I learned on lots of different machines because we, we didn't have enough money to have our own. And my father would bring them home from school on the weekends. And so I would learn, you know, 8-bit gaming on the Commodore 64 or basic for the trash, not trash 80, sorry, TRS 80. <laughs> and, and so it also impacted my ability to learn because I had all of these different systems um, 
to, to learn on. So it was a, I, I'm very grateful for my childhood. <laughs> well, and I think that scarcity is a beautiful thing in that it leaves you to value it more, especially at a personal level. Right. I mean, truthfully, like, so scarcity is an unfortunate behavioral technique that we use to sell things more, right? Create the, the, the vision of scarcity and, and then it, it makes it more wanted. But truthfully, it's also more appreciated. There's a reason why it's a, like a click word response in the mind uh, when we have. So, so when you get that on a weekend, you're like, oh, yeah, your dad's bringing home a Sinclair ZX81 this weekend. <laughs> you know, I get to check something out new out. And you kind of, you, cause you know, it's, it's a finite period. So I believe that you, you treat it with a different value because you know of it's that finite time in which you get to enjoy it. Yes. And one thing that we all have, doesn't matter how much money or little money we have is 168 hours in the week. And so I grew up wealthy from the point of view of having time with my siblings and with my parents because I had that time on the weekends to be together. And also in the summers, my, my father didn't work in July and August and we actually would get in that van and drive across the country. We did that twice growing up. Now, why do I bring that up? Because as organizations, it doesn't matter whether we're doing a billion dollars or we're doing 25 million dollars in revenue, we all have 168 hours in the week. And what you need to learn is to prioritize the things that are important. And so people often attribute value to the wrong things. As a team, as individuals on a team, we all have 40 hours in a week. You probably do a bit more than 40 hours in a week. But <laughs> let's yeah. pretend it's 40. You learn to place your time and efforts on the thing that actually have lasting value. And what I find the greatest scarcity of in, in the pipeline of talent is people who understand how to prioritize and where to put their time. And that is something that we all have the same amount. And it's, it's hard to find people that know how to effectively prioritize. I learned that as a child with, 11 siblings. I wasn't poor at all. We were wealthy because we, we knew where to, where to put our time, where to invest. And here's the, the other thing that I find is for, for people that generally have, have evolved career-wise like you, and, and I'll, I'll put myself not in, I'm not a CTO today, but uh, it, like I've always had this aspiration that I'm sort of driving towards, towards a, a different and, and I won't say bigger because it's, but I'll say it's a, a different, I want to do something different and take on a bigger, bigger task. And it's multitasking. You know, you and I probably grew up on it. I know I certainly, I would have been heavily medicated if I was born in this era today. I'd have been, uh, I'd have been a Ritalin child because I had ADHD, but I turned it into a career. And, <laughs> and <laughs> I had no choice. I'm like, I got to keep my attention how do I focus? Well, let me just get excited about some specific little technology things. And, and so I kind of, I used it and I drove myself towards learning and adapting and, and taking in information from people because it, it calmed my mind mm -hmm. because I would then try and multitask and try and do too many things like you just described where I was very poor at managing my 40, let alone my 168. So what I, at, at some point I would find that I'd spend my daytime at the office doing stuff that's like evening, like handling 
administrative things and, and dealing with taxes and, and organizing my, my weekends and, and get, and then I'd spend the evenings after the kids go to bed doing work from 11 PM until, you know, two in the morning. Be, and I found myself sort of flipped and, and I struggled. And so I kind of, I learned techniques by finding folks that were successful at kind of being better with that 168 more than just the 40. Uh, but how, how have you found that technologist? Cause I find we've mapped fairly closely within that range of the spectrum, you know, that there's mm -hmm. a lot of technologists seem to think they're particularly good at multitasking. Humans are not, that's just a scientific fact. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know that I'm particularly good at multitasking. What I'm, what I believe one of my strengths is, is prioritizing and, and ignoring all, everything else to the, you know, to, to try and tackle one particular problem and, and try to deliver something big. It's actually what caused me to leave the university. So I'd been working for the university, working on all these cool projects all over the place. But I thought, okay, I want to build something. I want to create something. So I left there actually, which was to a small, when I say small startup, it was about a hundred people. It's a company called Watchfire. Um, and I thought, okay, if I go there, then I can build something. And uh, what it led me to do is to focus on different areas. I went there and I, you know, focused first of all on learning something that I'd never done before. I, I started in services. Actually, this goes back to McDonald's, working every position. I started in services. I was the first services person built a services team. Okay, got bored with that. Going over to pre-sales, worked in pre-sales. They were selling a quality product and I was a security guy at heart, if you remember back to breaking into the mainframe. So I thought, okay, how can we take this product and turn it into something different? So I went into development. How many people do that transition from sales yeah. to development, pre-sales to development? So I built a, we were a quality product, scan websites is what we did for spelling errors, broken links and things. So I wrote a privacy module and then I wrote a security module um, and then I went into product management. And so it was this, how do I solve this? How do I learn this? How do I solve this? And went through all of these different kind of focus areas until ultimately I ended up there in an executive position, but only after having gone through services and pre-sales and development and product management and strategy and all these different areas. So I, I've learned that some of that success comes in not multitasking and instead saying, I'm going to take that ADD and I'm going to focus just on this until I solve it. And I'm going to move on to the next thing. I'm going to ask you a question that's a, it's a challenging one sometimes, and I'm fairly sure it's a stolen question, but it, it's good. We've talked a lot about successes and, and good things but we're often not just shaped by the good things in our experiences, but also the adversity that we face. So I, I don't even know, I don't even know a bigger story of you, but I the question is often, what is the, what's the worst thing that you've ever experienced that you're the most thankful for? The best things are the worst things. What's the sailing? Calm seas don't make good sailors or something to that effect. Um, I'm going to point to two times in my career. One was at that first company that I went to. I was there during the dot-com boom. I was there in 2000. 
we had grown from 100 people to 150 and all of a sudden they had to cut a third of the company and to me this was the worst thing in the world at a university they just didn't do that at mcdonald's they just didn't do that and so recognizing that people's lives were actually at livelihoods when i say their lives not their actual lives but i mean this this would feeding their families recognizing the impact sometimes beyond our control was something that you had to deal with i was grateful for that experience i wasn't happy for it but it taught me a lot about the unique value that people bring to teams and understanding how to prioritize at a team level which i had never had to do before so downturn which was the dot-com boom second point later on in my career we haven't kind of gone through it but Destone was another startup I went to. We were basically out of cash. We had not enough money in the bank to continue to pay employees through a period of time. And I remember I called the Jerry Maguire meeting. All the executives were in a room, was the CTO there. And um, we basically said, we're done. We, we, what are we going to do? We have to figure it out. And it's in those crucibles of, of, pain that you really learn what is important, what isn't important, who you can trust, that bring you out stronger and better than others. And so I always look at these times, everyone gets frustrated and, and tears their hair out. I look at them as opportunities. This pandemic, not being able to travel, it's an opportunity. I, you know, I talked about Kubernetes for the last two years. I actually spent the last three months installing and testing and playing with Kubernetes, right? So it's those times of significant challenges that present the greatest opportunities. And I would point to those two times early in my career when we had to cut a third of the company and this point when we were out of cash and needed to fold up the shop. Now, because of some, some good fortune, but also a shifting of priority, that resulted in the best possible outcome for that company about six months later. It was like, and you learn through that who you can depend on. It goes back to team, who you can depend on, what are the things that are important. Team goes beyond where you sit in the office today, right? You've, you, like many of us in, in the tech industry and in life, you find familiar faces at other places, right? How, I think that's also important is, uh, you know, what's the old saying, don't, don't poop or you eat, right? It's, we, we have to be good to ourselves, to our team, to our mm -hmm. peers, to our customers, you know, and because those relationships, you don't realize they're relationships until you find them at the next company and you're like, hey, you know, and there's a reason we hire teams, not people quite often, especially in the startup world. You'll, once, once one comes over, they're basically like, they've got an elastic on their back with a bunch of people hanging onto it. And then it all, they all just snap over in about a month and a half. <laughs> it's, it's important, right? So how, when did you recognize that you were building relationships that you wanted to last beyond the life of the company you're at? It was really, so I, I worked at Watchfire for, uh, for seven years. We were acquired by IBM. That was a security company. Um, that was 400,000 people made lots of connections there, but ultimately realized that I liked the smaller company better and went back to uh, 
being a CTO of another small startup, it's called Destone. It was there that I really learned the value of extended teams. If we limit the perspective of teams to the people that we work with, we're missing the bigger picture. Destone, because we are only 40 people, I, I recognize that you, you really need to network with the other CTOs, with the people that you've met in the past, because you don't have the perspective in your immediate team that you probably need. And so I would really point to that time in my career. It was from 2010 to 2013. Um, Destone was ultimately acquired by VMware. Um, though that I learned the value of teams beyond just those with whom you worked. And I've fostered a relationship since that point, since you know the last decade across organizations. When I have a question even now about things, I go back to people that I worked with 10 years ago. I call them up and we, we foster this uh, network of relationships. However, what I would say is even within a company, people often ask me, people within my organization asked me just recently, if I go to another company, what would I value? How would I rank things? You know, it was at the top of the list was team. What's at the bottom of the list? Compensation and benefits. Why is that? Because you have the least ability to influence your team after you join, unless you're the CEO and you can fire everyone and rebuild. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can't change the people that you work with. Um, you can change the people that you hire, but not your peers that you work with. And so the number one thing of any organization that you go to work for, my belief, I, I say this to everyone, is who is it that you're going to be working with because you can't change them. You have the most ability to influence your compensation and benefits. Work hard, do the right things, you'll do well. Um, but, but I point back to that, that period when we were such a small company, I was dependent on external wisdom to, to grow. It's uh, Diane Green described she, you know, the importance of that early team as well in building it. And she says the reason why hair uh, advisors and, and, and peers in the industry said, you know, take, take extra efforts in what you're about to do. And the description, she says, cause the first, the first 10 will hire the next hundred and the first hundred will hire the next thousand. So what you're doing is you're creating a, a culture through who you bring into this organization and it will begun, begin to sort of water down as you get further away from your ability to influence that hiring process. And it, it, it's a natural progression, which is, which is interesting, but it's definitely people, a lot of times people struggle. And I find the, especially in tech startups, we, we have to have a very strong belief, like an, a, a near religious belief in what we do. As if you didn't believe in what you were doing, you wouldn't really be there. If you're just there for the numbers, well, good on you. But you know, you'll be gone the next year when you don't make your numbers. But if you're there because you believe in what we're doing, it changes the approach and how you see adversity and difficulty and the worth of riding those storms versus like, hey, look, this was neat, but I'm not going to make my, my 225, which is my expected base this year. So <laughs> I got to go. <laughs> Yeah, I am always looking for passion. Someone, you can teach uh, technology and, and, you know, teach the, the ecosystem in which you work or language frameworks or whatever it is that you're hiring. It's hard to change or teach culture and attitude and passion. And so 
I always look for and hire those people that have a passion to make the world a better place. True, literally and truly, how do you use technology for good to use a VMware term, right? How do we, how do we actually build something that, that leaves us in a better place than we are today? That to me is far more important than someone that just has a technical competency uh, to fill a spot on a team. And now the real, the difficult question, the tough question that no one wants to face. Road or mountain? Which is the best bicycle style? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going I'm to call you as not only a great Canadian, but a great cyclist. Uh, the other thing that I find is working with teams is that you find those are the, the, the end of everybody's personality is in fact the thing that drives you more close to them because whether it's photography, music, cycling, hiking, whatever it is, laying down and, and learning more program, whatever it is, their, their ands, the thing that they consider their hobby might in fact drive the, the way they behave every day, every hour, so that the outside of the, the 128 is more impactful on the 40 than anywhere else. So as a fellow, I, I know I've seen a road bike in your, in your photos, so I, I, I can hope you're a good person. Or do you believe in mountain bikes and you're not a good person? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to give the cop out, then I'm going to give you the answer. The cop out is I love both. I have both a mountain bike and a road bike extremely different purposes. Um, I go on a mountain bike for the exercise and the, and the mental focus on the technical challenge of it. When I am on a mountain bike, I am not tuned out at all. I'm paying attention to the single track that I'm on. So I do that for exercise, um, but more for to, to focus my brain on the mountain biking itself. Road biking, I've done I don't know that I've biked as many as many miles as some other folks, but I've already done my century for this year. I try to do three centuries a year, a hundred miles. Um, I do a road bike to clear my brain and to think about technology or whatever it is. In fact, I listen to podcasts on a, on a road bike, but never in a million years on a mountain bike. So I use them for different purposes. If I'm trying to, you know, get some, time alone to focus on solving a problem at work or listening to podcasts or growing myself, I'm out on the road bike. If I'm trying to get some exercise and focus on the biking, then I'm mountain biking. Now, what's the question? Which have I done more of this year? The road biking. And that's because, you know, lots of big challenges at work and, and trying to grow myself as an individual. I listen to podcasts. I actually listened on my last road bike. I listened to Disco Posse. I didn't know oh, that yeah, you would, that. <laughs> I did. I didn't know that you had interviewed uh, John McAfee. John was McAfee. Like, that was a, that was a wild one. <laughs> wow. But I would do that on a road bike, not on a mountain bike. So I like them both. They both have their purpose. Now I'm going to, I'm going to lay down. I'm going to be your dad for a second. You're, you're <laughs> out of your bloody mind. You should never listen to anything when you're on a road bike. You're going to get killed out there. I, I, people always ask me like, what do you do while you're out there for five hours? I said, you get really introspective is what you do. I, I yeah. the most beautiful thing because you are, you're out of things to think about pretty quickly. And for me, I find, look, if I, I could do a hundred things in a day, I can maintain busyness at any moment. I've literally got no lack of things to get done. The, the most creative I feel and become is when I can't do anything. And the complete detachment 
from everything when I'm out on that. When you, when you put your leg over that crossbar, there's just nothing. Immediately you're in a different mindset. And then once you're out there for like 45 minutes in, you're, you're in emotion, right? You're not thinking about, you know, getting my cadence right and whatever, and you're, I'm out of the city and whatever. So I find that yeah, I have no choice. The hardest thing is that all these amazing ideas are just flying through my mind. And I'm like, got to remember this when I get back. So it, the good thing is being out there long enough, you can move it about. So that's, I, I'm with you that I, I, that's why I love it. I don't do downhill because, well, you can talk to my wife about why I don't do downhill because I'm a bit of an idiot. <laughs> and I'm, I used to hurdle down mountains. I lived in Vancouver. And so I love riding up. So luckily, a gentleman of my frame, you're a similar frame. You, you do lots of climbing. Yes. So I would go at every, every Saturday morning and ride up Mount Seymour, which was basically the same profile as Alpe d'Huez for folks that are Tour de France lovers. And it's a famous, you know, it's got 14 switchbacks. It's a beautiful, it's a crazy ride, but it's fun. So every weekend I would go up this bloody mountain and then come firing down it, which is about, you know, I, I think at my peak, I hit just under 90 kilometers an hour, which is a fairly bad idea when you're basically on two thumb tips worth of rubber because there's just, there's nothing good about that. But I would, I'm very, I, I'm not invulnerable at all. I've got, I got, I've got kids and I became very different about how I thought about downhill speed once I had kids. <laughs> so so you, can, you can tell my wife, you, you know her. So that's inside story. Funny thing, of course, is my <laughs> wife also uh, works in product strategy for Veeam. So we are, we are strangely connected. Also important in, you know, it's funny how those connections and cycling and McDonald's and whatever it is, right? The story of way beyond the 40 is far more impactful on relationships and future relationships, I think, than, than what you accomplish in those 40 hours and in those meetings. So it's 100%. Just nice. And the 128 allows you to make better use of the 40. Um, so 100% agree. And by the way, just on the safety thing, if I can touch back on that, I don't recommend my, my five hour rides on the bike. I use one ear one for yeah. two hours. So here, here's my, my recipe for success for me, at least for the first two hours, I'll listen to something. It will, if it's work, it'll be things like podcasts. If it's um, personal level, I, you know, I'll be listening to sermons and things. Um, but for two hours, I'll do that. And then the remaining three, that's what primes the pump. The remaining three, it gets the juices thinking about whatever I listen to in the first two hours. And, uh, but I go back to, don't ever put something in both ears. You want to hear the cars going by you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All you're going to hear is the thud. And then, yes. the, <laughs> oh yeah, no. So. And it's, it is, it is good advice. And, and Danny, you know, I've, I, I, when I met you, the funny thing is the moment my, I first met you at Veeam on a couple of years ago. And, uh, and I was there with my, with my wife, Melissa, and she said, like, she's like, oh, that's, that's Danny over there. I, the first word that I can't read your mouth, I'm like, he's from Halifax. So I can, he's, he's an <laughs> Easterner. And she's like, how do you know? I'm like, oh, trust me. I said, we, there's a handful of folks that if you've ever watched Rick Mercer, there you go. There you go. <laughs> so the, we, there's a, there's, and it's kind of funny. And that was like, I was immediately sort of interested and that was, you know, again, just like the things when we look to the teams, you know, look, ask them about their 128. 
uh, and it'll make your 40 a lot better. Right. And, and I think that's good advice. Closing advice, Danny, for people that are looking to build a team, what are, what are things that you found that you've been, felt were effective in that kind of helping you nurture a team environment? I would start with uh, you're never doing it on your own. Just general advice, even outside of building a team, find a mentor early on to help you grow yourself. And then on the team as you build it, I already mentioned it, look for passion. Look for people who actually have a passion for doing things better. Don't look, because it's important to say what you should look for versus don't look for. Don't look for people that look and sound and have the same point of view as you. The benefit of diversity, no matter what that looks like on a team, cannot be underestimated because when you're building a team, you want to have the debates before you align and commit to a strategic direction. If everyone is saying the same thing, that's uh, probably not the best team to have. So look for passionate people who have um, a vision of where the industry should go. Look for diversity of, of experience and opinion and thought process in building that team. And don't try to do it on an island. Look for a mentor. Look for others who can help you as you build that team. Now, as you're building it, transparency, communication, um, trust, can't say enough about those things. Those are fundamental, especially in those early days when you're growing for the future success of not only that team, but the company at large. Now, this is always, this, it, you brought up a really good point and there's nothing like two minutes to go and I want to bring up the <laughs> deepest point. Where, what's the danger of transparency and where do we need to maybe not use it? And as I'll say, as a, as a leader, as a builder, I'm, a, I'm with you. I firmly believe in, in radical transparency, but also doing it with ethos, like making sure we don't share things like, for, for me personally, I'll say like, don't compensation. We don't want to be transparent about everybody's compensation. People's personal challenges, right? Be a transparent with a person, but that's not a, hey folks, did you hear? You know, uh, <laughs> uh, you know that's, what are the, what are the things we have to still maintain some kind of a guard over in order to keep a strong team strong? I would say for me, the most significant thing is from first team to second team. What I mean by that is on the executive team, there should be 100% transparency across what the organization is doing. There should be wild fights and debates over whether you should do something, whether you should not do something. As that comes down to the next tier of teams, I, there, there's a saying in five dysfunctions of a team where you need to debate, align, commit. As you walk out of that first team, there needs to be alignment. What you don't want, where there should not be transparency, as you get down to the next team, you don't want to say, we've decided to do this, but I don't really agree with it. There should not be the full transparency in some decisions. Now, certainly there's tactical things, as you say, like compensation and, and things that you don't want to. But I also believe as you go down tiers in an organization, it's important that you exhibit alignment so that there's no question over what the direction and path of the company has to be. 
It's a great and actually a fantastic book. Uh, the Five Dysfunctions of a Team is one I, I reread uh, listen, uh, regularly just because it's a reminder of, it's told in a beautiful a personality story. It's mm -hmm. one of the, it's a, a very, very well written and it's too true. Like it's the moment you hear this person, you're like, I worked with that person. I remember that person, you know, that you have a name for it first. So it's really good. But uh, yeah, and like you said, sowing, sowing dissent is not, there's no success that comes from that. You know, every once in a while, it's good to like, like you said, have an open debate or trigger debate, but we have to, we have to say, look, regardless of my opinion on what's happening, we have to do this. We're on a mission and, and yep. we kind of got to maintain that. Well, Danny, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for folks, of course, that want to follow along your, uh, your cycling exploits with one ear uh, carefully uh, uh, listening to the traffic while the rest is listening to uh, crazy podcasts. Uh, you are on uh, Twitter. It is Danny Allen 5 Allen with two A's, of course. Uh, and uh, and uh, so Strava. You know, also, I'm a follower on Strava, so maybe people can hunt you down there and, and see your, uh, your crazy hilly exploits. <laughs> uh, and, uh, of course, uh, I'm not sure. My LinkedIn policy, I'm wide open, so I, I, I won't suggest that people could follow you there. But anyways, it's good to keep track of what you're going on. And, and of course, big thank you to, to you. Uh, for this and, and to the team at Veeam for being great supporters of, of the tech community uh, and, you know, truthfully of this, you know, you've been sponsoring my blog and, and you know, I say you, the, the organization has very, very kindly, you know, sponsored blogs and podcasts throughout the world and, and we're thankful for that. So with that, thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. It was a pleasure to be involved.